This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss your digestion with Dasha Leniva. We'll discover what self-care means with mindfulness expert Tracy Sograti. We'll learn about the vaccines necessary to avoid the tridemic with pharmacist and professor Aji Johal. And lastly, we'll find out how to communicate with those suffering with dementia with author Barbara Hewlett. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Killer T-cells, also known as CD8 plus T-cells, play a critical role in the immune system by eliminating virus-infected cells. While much has been studied about the immune cells in adults, little was known about how they evolve and function across a human lifespan until now. A world-first discovery has revealed killer T-cells in older adults directed against influenza viruses closely resemble those found in newborns and children, but struggle to recognize infected cells a finding that unlocks the potential for the development of better vaccines and therapies tailored to different age groups. People differ significantly in their memory performance. Researchers at the University of Basel now have discovered that certain brain signals are related to these differences. While it's well known that certain brain regions play a crucial role in memory processes, So far, it's not been clear whether these regions exhibit different activities when it comes to storing information in people with better or worse memory performance. In certain brain regions, including the hippocampus, the researchers found a direct association between brain activity during the memorization process and subsequent memory performance. Individuals with a better memory showed a stronger activation of these brain areas. The researchers were also able to identify functional networks in the brain that were linked to memory performance. These networks comprise different brain regions that communicate with each other to engage complex processes such as the storage of information. According to this research, the results are of great importance to our future research aimed at linking biological characteristics such as genetic markers to brain signals. On September 21st, Tonic Talk Show regular guest Andrea Donsky will be hosting a seminar titled The Power of Menopause at the Hilton Hotel in Markham. Special guests include Dr. Bryce Wild, N.D. and Julie Danilik. Expect great information and swag bags with $250 worth of goodies inside. For information about the event and to buy your tickets, please visit thepowerofmenopause.com. I'll be joined by Dasha Leneva in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. 
My first guest today is Dasha Leneva, who is a recent graduate of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and is an ND candidate. I'm excited to hear what she has to say about digestion, as she has all the up-to-date information that they're teaching uh, at the college on the topic. So welcome to the show, Dasha. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So I never thought that there were secrets, but I understand there are secrets to better digestive health. What are they? Oh, gosh. Well, I wouldn't say there's one secret. It's kind of intuitive. So I I think you've all heard the saying, you are what you eat. But that's really not that simple. And there's a lot of emerging evidence that suggests that it's equally important to consider how well you digest and absorb nutrients from the food we consume. So, you know, maybe the new saying should be, we are what we digest. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. First, it starts with some mechanics, like eating slowly, chewing your food food thoroughly, And what this does is it increases the surface area for exposure to the digestive fluid released by your salivary glands, which actually initiate digestion. It's interesting. I had a conversation with my family the other day. We were speculating whether it would be better to eat stuff like yogurt and fruit as yogurt and fruit, like in a bowl, or have it as a smoothie. And somebody said, and it wasn't me, I can't take credit for this. They said, no, it's probably better to eat it as yogurt and fruit because then you're chewing and you're digesting it and the saliva comes out versus like sucking it up through a straw and that step is missing. So is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely right. And when you eat it whole, it means that the fibers are still intact. And even, like you said, the chewing initiates the process, gives your stomach a little bit of a head start to your digestion. So all these fluids that are necessary for us to break down our food are released in that time. And having that fiber actually slows down the glucose spike you would have. And it kind of slows you down because I'm sure you might have noticed if you ever drink a smoothie, we tend to finish that a lot faster than we would a whole bowl of yogurt and fruit. No, that's true. I never thought of that. I mean, there's certain foods that you end up like scarfing down quickly. It's, you know, it's the pizza, the taco, like tacos. I think people eat tacos probably faster than anything because they're so mm-hmm. messy. You know, like you, you kind of want to eat them before they get all over your hands. And I wonder, yeah. I wonder if like digesting tacos is easier or harder just because we're, you know, maybe I'm projecting, maybe I'm the only one who does that. But mm-hmm. like when you eat quickly, I, I think it does impact the rest of your digestion. I, I think that's true. So what about the process of digestion once we get to the stomach? So what's happening there with like the enzymes and such? So in the stomach, after just one more thing I wanted to just fit in. So yeah, so when we actually eat a little bit slower, our body is allowed to release hormones that can tell that we're full. So this is a hormone called leptin. It's a satiety hormone. And like I said, it tells your brain when you're full and it can actually curb overeating. And leptin actually interacts with dopamine. We've heard about dopamine a lot in on other podcasts and stuff like that. And it's our pleasure and satisfaction hormone. And research suggests that when you eat too quickly, you don't have enough time for this hormonal system to talk to each other. So you might feel physically full, but you're not satisfied with this. And this can leave us reaching for more food and especially food that brings us pleasure, which isn't always the healthiest kind. And then when you get to the stomach... So our stomach is lined with a bunch of glands, and they produce about four liters of gastric juice a day, which is huge. And it's mainly a substance called hydrochloric acid. And this breaks down food while digestive enzymes split up the proteins, making it easier for us to absorb these nutrients. 
Okay, so is that the only enzyme that's created in your stomach, or is there something else going on there as well? For the stomach, it's mainly that. And then when we move on to the intestines, the pancreas produces more enzymes that help us break down our food. So what happens if you don't have enough stomach acid? Is that a thing? Do some people not have enough stomach acid? Yeah, so this is actually a condition called hypochlorhydria, and it can lead to indigestion or bacterial overgrowth. And there's been research to suggest that biotin hydrochloride supplements might help increase stomach acid levels, which can aid in this breakdown of food and absorption of nutrients. And biotin comes from lots of foods like spinach and whole grains and beets. And sometimes people say it's a quasi-vitamin because of its multi-benefits in the body. So if you had that situation, like how would it manifest? How would you know if you didn't have enough stomach acid? What are the symptoms? You might get some stomach pain. You might get some feelings of like indigestion. You might get bloated. You might, ju- you might see undigested food in your stool, stuff like that. Okay. All right. We talked about the importance of the enzyme, but how do the enzymes get produced in your body? What's responsible for that? Absolutely. So it's pancreas. That's what produces the big three enzymes. So there's amylase for carbohydrates, protease for proteins, and lipase for fats. And these are all released in the small intestines, and they work like little scissors. So each of them cutting each respective nutrient into smaller pieces for digestion. And the pancreas also has a role in buffering our stomach acid. So when food enters the small intestine from the stomach, it's initially mixed with what we talked about before, hydrochloric acid. And we know this helps break down our food and activate certain enzymes. So the hydrochloric acid helps activate these pancreatic enzymes because it senses it in the part of the small intestine called the duodenum. Now this acid, it can be damaging to the small intestine, so it needs to protect itself. And this is where the pancreas can come in. So what the pancreas does is it releases something called bicarbonate ions to neutralize stomach acid. So while the pancreatic enzymes focus on breaking down the nutrients in our food, the bicarbonate ions act as a buffer to help neutralize this acidity. And this creates a favorable environment for digestion and absorption in the small intestine. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the pancreas has to be working properly or, or we get some problems, right? Yes. So I guess the phrase is pancreatic insufficiency. So what happens if you have pancreatic insufficiency? Yeah, so pancreatic insufficiency happens when the pancreas isn't making enough of these enzymes that our body needs to break down food properly. And without these enzymes, so there's two things that could happen. One, you can't really digest carbohydrates, proteins, or fats. They can't be broken down well. And this makes it hard for your body to get nutrients from the food that you eat. The second thing that can happen is that stomach acid isn't neutralized enough. So if the pancreas isn't releasing enough bicarbonate ions, the acid from the stomach isn't neutralized well. And this can cause lots of discomfort and further issues in digestion. So just to summarize all that, pancreatic insufficiency can lead to trouble digesting food, absorbing nutrients, and this can lead to things like gas, bloating, constipation, and diarrhea. And actually, what a lot of people do is they supplement with porcine-sourced pancreatic enzymes, which some say that it works wonders. Okay, so let's talk about those supplements for a bit, because that's interesting, because sometimes I have bloating and gas, and I, I was wondering, you know, what is it that might be missing from my diet or from me 
that might need a little bit of a boost. So let's talk mm-hmm. about those enzymes for a second. So you can get those in supplement form. And, and like, are they a liquid or a pill? Like, how do you take them? Yeah. So they're usually capsules and there are porcine source, like I said, and for vegans and vegetarians, there's plant-based alternatives like pineapple source from bromulin and papain from papaya fruit. And there are studies suggesting that these may help some people with pancreatic insufficiency. But if people um, are experiencing bloating, the thing that they may want to consider is how are they first eating their food? Are they chewing their food properly? What kind of state are they in stress-wise when they're eating? Because a lot of people eat on the go and they're wondering why they're always bloated and their body's just not primed to digest a meal. And suddenly this meal comes into your body and it's not ready to digest it. So it's kind of in a bit of a shock. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. But I guess it would be hard to know, like if you're chewing your food or eating slowly enough, like how, how much chewing and how slowly do you need to eat before you have to determine that it isn't that issue, that it might be your stomach acids or it might be the pancreatic enzymes that, that are deficient? Like, how would you know? Is it a process of elimination or like, what do you do? Yeah, I, I think it would be a process of elimination. You can also consult your healthcare provider if you want sort of a more comprehensive deep dive into how well you're digesting. But usually what people recommend is just chewing your food until it's kind of like a fine, it's going to sound kind of gross, but kind of like a fine mush yep. in your mouth. So, you know, when you chew a lot and you kind of like instinctively start to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like that. And, you know, I used to experience the same thing all the time, too. I'd be bloated because I'd be, you know, in school, super busy and eating on the go. And then once I actually got myself into a mindset of, okay, like, you need to slow down, you need to chew your food, and just nothing is ever, you know, a super emergency that you need to take yourself out of this state of calm while you're eating. Okay. What about the food that we're eating does that impact digestion and, and, you know, this notion, like, do prebiotics or probiotics impact digestion? Yes, they do. So prebiotics are the food that our gut bacteria feed on. So that's stuff like fiber, and what that does is slow down digestion, and it helps our gut bacteria produce beneficial substances like short-chain fatty acids, which uh, feed the lining of our gut and can help maintain gut health, and also vitamins. And vitamins that are produced by the probiotics are vitamins like vitamin K and the majority of soluble B vitamins. Okay. Can we get enough prebiotics from our food, typically? And if so, like, or if not, what are our solutions to that? So it's completely based on the person, but... Eating lots of fiber can help, can be a wonderful source of prebiotics. People also take probiotics as well, and I can give you a little rundown of how they work. Mm -hmm. So some of these beneficial bacteria, they help break down fiber, complex carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And what they do is they make these nutrients more accessible for absorption in our small intestine. So probiotic bacteria, they're involved in the fermentation of dietary fibers like we've talked about. And some examples of dietary fibers would be like leafy green vegetables. You've probably seen things like psyllium husk or chia seeds or flax seeds. 
Those would be examples of fibers. And some of the compounds in these fibers aren't actually digestible by humans. And so the bacteria in our stomach, they feed on these, as I mentioned before, and create all of these energy sources for our stomach, which in turn helps us digest our own food. And I understand fiber plays a role uh, if one were, for example, constipated. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just give you an example with uh, something I just mentioned. So psyllium husk, it's one of my favorite fibers. And it's a soluble fiber, and it passes through the small intestine without being broken down. And it absorbs water and forms this viscous gel-like compound, and it acts against constipation and diarrhea, which is actually pretty cool when you think about it. So for constipation, it helps form a bulk compound in your bowel, and basically this can stimulate a process called peristalsis, which basically is movement in your intestines. And it essentially can push out the stool if you're feeling a blockage. And with diarrhea, as I said, it absorbs water, so it forms a bulk compound. So you don't have as liquidy of a bowel movement as you would. That makes sense. Well, we've gone through the system. We've gone from chewing all the way down through the stomach to the end. So I I guess this seems like a fitting end to our discussion. Would you agree? (laughs) Absolutely. Very funny. (laughs) But yeah, all kidding aside, it's important to talk to your healthcare professional about any problems you might have or supplements you may consider starting. And supplements can definitely help with digestive issues, but chronic digestive concerns could represent a more serious condition. And seeking the guidance of a healthcare professional is definitely recommended. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. That was Dasha Laneva. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about self-care on The Tonic. OMTO is back. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique themed classes, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for all. A portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to the Scott Mission. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date! I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at www.sagratiyoga.com and Sagrati Yoga on Facebook or at Tracy Sagrati on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? Ooh, I'm doing awesome. I'm so happy to be here, Jamie. Can't wait to talk to you about self-care. Yeah, so we're going to be riffing on your article about self-care in the yeah. fall issue of the magazine. Yeah. So for yeah. those who don't know who've been living under a rock what is <laughs> what is self-care and how does it get lost in a consumer society Ooh, we're contextualizing go on right yeah okay so self-care is as necessary as air is so you need it as much as you need to breathe but specifically it's really the conscious act of taking care of your health physically, mentally, emotionally, and socially on a daily basis. And, you know, what that looks like is doing little tiny interventions and assessments every day. So not super big things, but tiny things every day so that collectively are taken together. Those little interventions really amplify in terms of the effects. And, you know, how does it get lost in consumer society in so many ways? I always think of the hedonic treadmill which is this, you know, this theory that, okay, we're constantly thinking to ourselves, okay, well, if I have, you know, more social status or a bigger house or a nicer car, then when all of that stuff happens, then I'll be happy. And, you know, what research shows is that, like, you're temporarily, there's a little boost, but very, very quickly, uh, no matter what you have, as, you know, once you're beyond getting your basic needs met, uh, you just very quickly just drop back to whatever your normal baseline is. Right. You know, and I think the other thing that happens too, and this is the thing that I see with clients, honestly, Jamie, is that people who, you know, are on that hedonic treadmill, which is, you know, pretty much everyone, they spend more. And then once you spend more, you kind of have to work more. Yep. Right. And, you know, so it creates this really like soul sucking cycle, negative cycle, and people get burnt out. And, you know, the thing is like with burnout, you know, going to a spa for a couple of days or taking one vacation a year, it's not going to fix the problem. It will give you very temporary relief, but it's, it's not going to have a big and lasting impact. I think, you know, when you take those trips, right. And I'm not much of a traveler. I know most people travel far more than I do, but it almost serves as, as more of a, like a reminder of like how busy you are. Yeah. And when I used to practice law, there was this terrible thing that used to happen. Like you'd book a trip, but the time both immediately before and immediately Mm -hmm. after were just so much worse because you had to clear your plate. And then of course the world doesn't stop if you happen to be in Sicily or Las Vegas or wherever it is you're going to be. So when you get back, there's all this work waiting for you. And if you didn't believe that was true, the minute you look at your phone, uh, you'll see all those emails that are piling up. So it becomes... Like, it almost erodes the value of the relaxation of what you're trying to accomplish with your hundred percent with your holidays, and so these kind of the micro process of taking care of yourself in the moment daily, mm-hmm. I think, becomes even more important. I would say, yeah, it's critical, and I, I love that you're bringing that up that like that intensity before and after a trip because 
It's true. And anyone listening will go, I'm sure everyone's kind of nodding their heads and going, oh, yeah, I've experienced that before, where I feel worse before and worse after I get back. Right. And also, like, everybody's piling into planes where you're going to get COVID. So, like, so you you feel great, and then you come back. and The price of having a great time in New York City was I got COVID. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. So, what are the pillars of self-care, then? What is the basis of all of this? Okay, so I love this model. This is not my model. It comes from the uh, International Self-Care Federation. And there are seven pillars. And the first one is knowledge and health literacy. And so this is access to information around our physical health, our psychological health, you know, mental and emotional, and, and our social health. And really knowing how to think critically about the information that we're consuming and knowing where to go to get information that's, you know, well-vetted, basically. It includes physical activity, right? So the capacity to be physically active. It includes mental health, uh, healthy eating, and access to healthy food. It includes risk avoidance, right? So learning to make decisions that are not high-risk decisions in terms of any facet of our health. Good hygiene. And it, like good hygiene, you could think of like visiting the dentist regularly is a great example. And then rational use of products. So that could be medications, but it could also be things like alcohol or, you know, say use of legalized drugs, right? So the, the rational use of those products. And the thing is, like each of these pillars has to be supported by self-monitoring. So we have to be able to see, you know, when we're using something to cope uh, in maybe an unhealthy way, or we have to be able to notice when, you know, say we're moving a lot less and and sometimes, you know, say, for example, people track steps and uh, maybe they were walking a lot more and and walking like 13,000 steps and then all of a sudden it's only like 2,000 steps, right? So that's a huge difference in terms of activity. You need to be able to notice those things. Self-regulation is, you know, I'm going to describe this uh, in this way. Self-regulation is our ability to make decisions for long-term benefit rather than just short-term benefit. Mm -hmm. And it's decision-making that really, that privileges creating a balanced lifestyle. And so this is a huge commitment, right? It means that we are doing these micro-assessments, you know, sort of all day long, tuning into ourselves and then choosing actions moment to moment that are really health-promoting. And then at the same time, managing issues as they come up, because as, you know, as I'm sure many listeners and you and I have experienced, as you age, I mean, health issues come up. Mm-hmm. And thing is, we, we have to manage those instead of going into any kind of avoidance behaviors. And yet society sort of fights us every step of the way in our yeah. efforts to self-monitor and regulate and, and make healthy decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like so, what do you notice about that? Well, it's just so easy. It's so easy to have that like unhealthy snack. I, I'm just thinking like on a on a micro level, you know, just to go and grab crappy food that will make you feel good in the moment, mm-hmm. but you'll mm-hmm. regret later. You know, all the vices that are now legalized, people gravitate towards them for a reason, and they're more accessible now. I, I don't know. I just th- I, I think the world is our oyster, but I'm not sure we should be eating those oysters. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, you're right. And and what you're speaking to is, again, that idea of short-term versus long-term. Yeah. And, and as human beings, I mean, we are certainly oriented towards 
short term. I mean, you know, if you're feeling super anxious or your nervous system is jacked because you had a crazy day at work and you come home and your kids are going nuts and, you know, the short term, the short term solution of, you know, if it's legal for you, you know, having marijuana Mm -hmm. or having a drink or doing something like that. Yeah, for sure. In the short term, you're going to feel some relief. It's going to give you some distance, but it's actually stepping back and looking at, okay, well, what are the long-term consequences if this is my only way out of this feeling state? Yeah, it's a fine line, right? Like, uh, I enjoy recreational cannabis. I do. Yeah. I enjoyed it before it was legal. I enjoy it now. And, 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 but I know, I know it has other impacts on my health. And, you know, if I'm using it, for example, as a sleep aid, that's probably not a good long-term solution. It just isn't. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're talking about, too, is just that balance. Like, if you go back to that pillar, right? It's like, okay, what is the rational use of products? And, you know, Jamie, like, I am, you know, I'm a kind of, like, the middle path kind of person. I don't, you know, there's not a lot of hard no's. You know, I enjoy, you know, recreational cannabis. I enjoy wine, you know, really good wine. But it is about having that very balanced approach and not having it be like your only go-to. And certainly when it's the kind of the Band-Aid for when you're stressed out. Okay, so very quickly, we only Uh have about a minute left. What would be your top tip to support these good decisions that we want to make? Yeah, so for emotional health, I would say people would benefit from knowing what their fundamental needs are and what the barriers to meeting them, right? So what do I actually need in order to have a healthy body, healthy nervous system, healthy connection, and what are the barriers, what gets in the way of me actually meeting those needs? Mm -hmm. I think boundaries are really important. So the act of learning to set both internal and external boundaries is just a form of regulation. So really, you know, starting today, listening to this uh, interview, start to do some research on on boundaries and really mapping out the triggers to, you know, mood imbalance or even, you know, when you when you get out of balance in terms of your use of food or any other coping mechanism that's that gets kind of maladaptive, just mapping out the triggers that start that cycle so that you can start to interrupt it. Physically, I think, how you know, prioritize sleep, healthy foods, and exercise. Exercise is the big one. Yep. Exercise is probably the most effective intervention that we have on many levels. Get regular checkups and dental care. And then social health, you really want to create a circle around you of people that support a lifestyle of well-being. You know, whether that's meeting friends at the gym or meditating with friends or, you know, just finding a way to do healthy things other than just drinking together or other than just, you know, sitting around together. I would say those are the top things. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? I want to talk about body image, my friend. All right, then. That was Tracy Socrati. We have to take a short break. But when we return, we'll discuss vaccines for the tridemic on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. 
Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Ajit Johal is a community pharmacist and clinical assistant professor at the UBC Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences. In 2018, he started an organization called Immunize.io with a mission statement of taking our best shot at immunizing the world. Through Immunize.io, he has worked with numerous organizations and communities to address vaccine hesitancy and improve vaccine access. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. I'm happy to be on the show. So today we're going to talk about a tridemic and I have to tell you, I have no idea what that is. So we should, you should probably tell me what a tridemic is, and then we can move on to what vaccinations are available to protect against the diseases that make up the tridemic. Oh, no, perfect, Jamie. So I think, I think you're familiar with the word tri, which means three. Yep. So tridemic is referring to three respiratory diseases. So these respiratory diseases are influenza, which we've known about for a long time, COVID-19, which we've been, it's been in our face for a couple of years now. And the other one is RSV, also known as respiratory syncytial virus. So those three respiratory diseases make up the quote-unquote tridemic. And the reason why it's called the tridemic uh, is because in the climate we live in, in the fall, winter months in our hemisphere, we often see increased circulation of these respiratory diseases like influenza, RSV, and COVID-19. So if it's sort of the, the perfect storm, we could see increased cases of all three, which would be bad for our vulnerable populations and bad for our hospitals. Okay, so it's interesting. We, we've covered all three on the show numerous times, but I've never heard them sort of being referred to in conjunction with each other. Like the doctors I've spoken with have always sort of treated them separately as distinct illnesses that are obviously viral and can be caught. So it's interesting to me that you've lumped them together. Why did you? I'm curious. You know, that's a, that's a really good point, Jamie. So I think where that comes from is now that uh, obviously COVID is on the scene, we've been doing more testing. So we've been doing more testing in our hospitals and a little bit in our communities and finally discerning, you know, what's actually making people sick. And without testing, we categorize it in this sort of bucket category called influenza-like illness. So influenza gets credit for a lot of the RSV we've seen historically. And then, of course, with the pandemic, it was COVID-19 until proven otherwise. So everyone was testing for COVID. If it wasn't COVID, they kind of said, oh, okay, it's not COVID, I'm just sick. So now that, um, you know, we've it's been put on our radar, the impact of these diseases and on our system, there's been more testing to discern what the causative agent is. And last season, in particular, was a bad RSV season yep. that we saw. So the fear is, will all of these diseases have their run at the same time? And of course, you know, I'm not as concerned of somebody getting all three, which would be very unfortunate, is, is there's three different diseases that's three different patients that could potentially get very sick. So it's important to think of it as a continuum because when we look at all of these respiratory diseases, there's certain things we can do to mitigate our risk. And obviously vaccinations is, is a big one. But even things like washing your hands, you know, hand hygiene, 
not staying home when you're sick. Uh, these are very important measures to prevent the spread of all three of these diseases. I understood the problem with RSV last year was that you know previously people had been cloistered and, and following the protocols for COVID. You know their natural immunity to RSV wasn't quite there, and then of course everybody got let loose, and so with all the interactions, people just weren't ready for the uptick in the RSV and the influenza. But now that we've sort of been out and about for a little while, isn't it the case that people's natural immunity is up, or am I wrong about that? You bring up a good point. So it's what you were referring to as the immunity debt, right? Yeah, so the exactly. The debt that we, as a population, we, we put ourselves in because of the lockdowns and restrictions, which worked very well for preventing the spread of COVID-19, but it prevented other viruses as well. And there is this sort of baseline immunity you get in your population when people get naturally infected. So there was that. But also, when we settle into this equilibrium, we, we just don't know what the trajectory of each virus is going to be. So this is really sort of a blank canvas now, um, now that we don't have restrictions, and now we're contesting with these three diseases this coming fall. So my understanding, I had somebody on the show who does research into COVID last week, and he was telling me that the primary variant of interest is, is one of the Omicron variants, uh, which is spreading very quickly, but is not mm-hmm. as, as virulent. Is, is that what you're seeing? Yes, the virus has been evolving from the original strain that uh, came over from Wuhan, China, and then uh, it has kind of gone through these various lineages, and we've been using Greek letters to name it, so Alpha, Beta, Delta, and Omicron has seemed to be where it's settled. And within Omicron, it's now branching into this sub-lineage. So right. um, it's, it's in the Omicron family, but it's, it's really evolving through there. So the individual you had on the show is absolutely right. When we look at new variants, we look at three things. So virulence, uh, transmissibility, and immune evasiveness. So virulence does the new variant cause more severe illness in people, even in healthy people? And the answer to that question seems to be no. Transmissibility is can it be spread to others more quickly? And the answer to that is yes. And the third question is immune evasiveness. And immune evasiveness is, is a really important thing to consider with a new variant because is it able to evade our defenses, mm-hmm. either from vaccination or from actually getting COVID, or from both? And the answer to that seems to be yes. So with increased transmissibility and increased immunovasiveness, that's where we, where we will see more cases and potentially more hospitalizations. So if that's true, who should be getting vaccinated this fall? Well, everybody in the authorized age category, and that's six months and over, is recommended to get a updated vaccination against the XBB variant. And the XBB15 variant is kind of being outcompeted, but it's very, very far on the Omicron lineage. So it will provide good cross protection into the circulating variants that we're going to be seeing this fall. So the short answer is everybody in the authorized age category, six months and older, can get a updated vaccination to restore their protection and protect themselves against this new variant, especially as we see our population immunity start to wane, because that does happen. But of particular importance, so a very strong recommendation, is to our vulnerable patients. So those who are over 65, those living in long-term care, pregnant patients, those with underlying medical conditions, different comorbidities like diabetes, renal disease, obesity, cardiovascular disease, and also those taking uh, immunocompromising or immunosuppressive medications. And that could be, you know, chemotherapy. It could be even as common as taking a biologic medication for things like rheumatoid arthritis. So any sort of immune suppressive therapy is predisposes a patient for uh, severe illness. So those would be our high priority groups. But it's recommended that everybody should get their updated monovalent XBB booster this fall. So with the influenza shots that you can get, 
My understanding is, like the, the people that put together those shots, they're looking to see where the trends are, like which viruses are prominent. But it's a bit of a guessing game, right? Like they're trying to get in front of which one is going to be spreadable and and which one are we going to be faced with. And sometimes they do a better job of guessing which of the influenza bugs they need to be fighting in any given year because you can't cover all of them. Is there any concern with that sort of dichotomy when it comes to the COVID vaccines? Are we there yet? Or are they pretty good at guessing which variant they need to cover? Yeah, so that's a good question, Jamie. I speak to influenza first, and there have been historically some mismatch years. Yeah. And over the years, it's gotten a lot better in terms of predicting, you know, viral epidemiology. It's the WHO group that uh, looks at this all around the globe and looks at sort of trends. And obviously, a group of very smart people who know their craft in terms of predicting the best candidate for a vaccination. And it's been getting a lot better, and flu vaccine matches have been quite good in the past couple of years. For COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus does doesn't quite mutate as robustly as influenza. So in the sort of data that I looked at from the WHO meeting that was presented is, you know, it's quite set on this Omicron lineage. And they're often testing, you know, these, these variants in like a, like a Petri dish in vitro and seeing which antibodies can neutralize it. And that's really the, the correlate of protection that we look at is, you know, if I've been vaccinated, my body's going to make antibodies. Are those antibodies enough to neutralize the virus? And the answer to that is yes, with the current uh, vaccine and the current variants that we're expected to see this fall. So all the more reason for people who may be hesitant to take a vaccine for, the, for them to take the booster for COVID. But what else would you tell somebody who is reluctant to get that booster? Well, I think the big thing, Jamie, is, is vaccine fatigue. Yeah. And, and the first thing I would probably address that with, with a bit of empathy, because going back to 2020 and then 2021, when vaccines were first rolled out, it was very, uh, it was a sort of ray of hope. It was this sort of mass vaccination campaign. Everyone was getting vaccinated. They're getting their two shots. And it was a lot of people who previously, as, as adults, perhaps hadn't gotten vaccinated as a kid, you know, stepped up and rolled up their sleeves and got vaccinated. And then, you know, it was found that we needed another dose because the protection waned over time. And I think what's happening now is people are kind of counting doses. They're saying, well, I've had three, I've had two, I've had four. And, you know, I just don't think there's a need to keep doing this. And that really contributes to the fatigue. And I, I, really, I really get that because when the vaccines are rolled out, it was a lot of thought that it would be like a one and done. So it's like, okay, there's a, there's a disease, there's a vaccine, okay, now we can move on. But what's really important, and a lot of my colleagues are reminding people, is that the influenza pandemic was over 100 years ago, and we're still vaccinating against the flu. And, you know, when we look at the 1918 flu, before we started doing mass vaccination campaigns in like the late 40s and 50s, it resurged, it, it continued to wreak havoc, and there were some seasons where millions of people died. So, you know, we have the opportunity to kind of learn from the past and the way science evolves is to stay ahead of this. And I think the big thing is we want to keep our foot on the gas. And the one thing that I'm telling my patients, my colleagues, is that, you know, we don't want to go back to using public health measures because that has an impact in terms of businesses, mental health, and things like that. So it's really important that we we continue to stay ahead of this virus because it does evolve. It becomes more immune evasive. And, and, you know, we should restore our protection with each coming season when the risk of cases goes up, because that's the case in terms of, you know, where we live and also people gathering indoors and things like that. So the timing and the target of the new vaccine will really help us push forward and really live with COVID because it's not going away anytime soon.
Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, my pleasure. It's great to be a part of it. Thanks for having me. That was Ajit Johal. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss communicating with someone with Alzheimer's on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Barbara Hewlett is a prominent human-centric healthcare designer, author, and speaker. She's created healing environments and solved health challenges for more than 300 healthcare organizations and serves as a healing environment consultant to healthcare facilities, product manufacturers, academia, institutions, and the architectural design community. She's written three books and always fascinated with the beauty of science and the science of design. She believes that human-centric design experiences can mitigate human misery. Welcome to the show, Barbara. How are you? Great. Thank you, Jamie. I look forward to this. So today we're going to discuss something interesting, and that is how to communicate with somebody who may have dementia or Alzheimer's. And, you know, there's a lot of caregivers who who listen to the show, so I thought it would be important to bring you on. Are, Are you up for the task? Sure. It's one of my favorite topics because communication with dementia is one of the areas that we really have struggle with and often have very difficult consequences. Let's talk. Okay. So if somebody has dementia, how does it affect that person's ability to communicate effectively? Well, having dementia, regardless of what disease it comes from, it really affects two of the brain's memory systems, the semantic or the cognitive part of the memory or the episodic or the emotional part of the memory. And with dementia, the semantic memory is greatly damaged. Sometimes the episodic is damaged as well, but not as much. So the semantic memory is made up of our cognition, the data that we've collected over our lives, facts, and language skills. It also impacts our filters, so we don't know how to use finesse to get through a difficult situation. So this way the memory work directly impacts the people with dementia, how they remember words and what they mean. So that's how it affects our language skills. Okay, so that's one part of communication. There's also sort of nonverbal communication. Yes. And sort of people pick up on facial expressions as well. So how does that impact the overall act of communication? Well, the nonverbal plays right into the emotional part of the memory. So this is where we have success, and we can break down cognition difficulties by the emotional part of the memory. 
such as smiles, facial expressions, using our hands to point, and using body language to ask questions. For example, if you're smiling at the person, you touch their shoulder, and then you touch your stomach or rub your stomach and say, does your stomach hurt here, is far more effective than saying, do you have a stomach ache? So combining those emotional characteristics with some language helps bridge that uh, communication between them, the cognitive and the emotional part of the memory. So there's a gentleman in my neighborhood who goes for regular walks, and I see him because I walk my dog. And the first time I came upon him, he told me a joke, a simple joke, and then he walked along his way. And then I saw him a few days later, and he told me the same joke. And then he did it a third time. And when he did it, I didn't realize he was suffering from dementia. And I said, you know, I've heard that one. Do you have another one? And I didn't know. Right now I know better. And I listened to the joke. I probably heard it maybe 50 or 60 times. But he was upset. He got upset when I when I told him that he had already told me that joke. And I realized the frustration that must be there for people who have dementia when they're confronted with, you know, the shortcomings or, or the problems in communication. So what can we do? to help maintain calm when we're interacting with somebody who's going to get frustrated with the difficulty in communication. Right. Well, the frustration occurs because they're living only in the moment. And like your experience walking the dog, that moment was the first moment for him. He couldn't recall the past moments that he had with you. So that was the frustration. And then you were asking him a question that was very difficult for him to respond to another joke. So the ability to keep calm and eliminate that frustration and anxiety is speaking slowly, being friendly, always use a smile, and if they repeat, which they will, you just ignore it like it's the first time you heard it. Yeah. And sometimes just, the, the, again, the body language, a, a gentle touch on the shoulder or the arm can be very reassuring. And um, trying not to contradict them or make them feel like they might be losing their dignity. You need to respect that, even if you've heard it a thousand times. <laughs> they do repeat because it's the first time for them. Yeah, I mean, obviously I came to understand what was going on. You know, I, I felt foolish for not understanding what was going on immediately, but now it's sort of, you know, it's understood when you see him, he's going to tell that joke. And that's his way of communicating. And, and, you know, he seems happy in doing that. That's great. We want to keep them talking, even if they say it a million times. Yeah. So there's a term called active listening. Can you explain what that is and, and how it plays a role in dementia communication? Yes. Active listening means that you slow down, you put aside your own agenda, and you pay 100% attention to what's going on with the person, listening to what they say, and it can be confusing to you. It's almost like we're speaking two different languages because that person is living in the moment, and that moment may not be 2023. It may be something in 1966. And they're in that moment. We don't know where they are. We have to take them for what they say and agree with them 
and give them dignity and as much uh, comfort as possible. And that was, it's, it's listening with more than your ears, but with your heart. And that's really important. They will say sometimes really crazy things and maybe say it over and over again that you know is wrong. Uh, they may be talking about, you know, your dog and call him a cat, and you don't correct them. You just listen to what they're saying and avoid dismissing their statements, even their unrealistic ideas. Why would you do that? I mean, I, can, I understand in certain circumstances those because conversations when you contradict them yeah. or say you know that's not a cat it's a dog you're putting them down you're making them feel like they don't know what they're talking about and they need to feel like what they're talking about because when they are not able to express even when it's incorrect they withdraw and they withdraw from the conversation they withdraw from life and then we have all kinds of other problems also when you contradict a person with dementia in conversation you may have disruptive behavior that then it creates a whole new set of problems that you are very concerned about which could result in throwing something hitting somebody running away running into traffic all kinds of disruptive behaviors because their filters are also gone and when they get disruptive in a conversation or feel like they don't have it together, they're going to run. They're going to use whatever fight or flight strategy that's built into their person and act on it. So that's why you want to stay calm and reassuring to help them get through that situation. What are some other mistakes that people make other than correcting somebody with dementia, and how can we avoid them? Some of the biggest mistakes are correcting is, is one of the biggest ones, disagreeing, arguing. The person with dementia has no capacity for arguing. They cannot figure it out. The other mistakes are talking too fast. You have to slow down your conversation. Another mistake is, well, I, I said already, contradicting, but these kind of Approaches where you put a person down makes it very difficult. So speaking slowly, using very simple language, easy to understand words and phrases, not complicated descriptions of things. Avoid descriptions at all. Just keep it very, very simple. Incorporate body language as much as possible, facial gestures, expressions. Use your hands and um, stick to the essential points to prevent overwhelming them. For example, if you have to tell somebody, I'm going to take you to the doctor, and it's scheduled for Tuesday at 10 a.m. with Dr. Smith in the clinic on Elm Street, you can simply say, we have a doctor's appointment on Tuesday. I'll see you then. So really reducing the complexity of your conversation is very helpful. Also, timing is important. You don't want to come on too strong with a person who's very tired or ready for bed or is very engaged in some other activity. It just won't work. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great. Thank you, Jamie. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dasha Laneva, Tracy Sagrati, Aji Johal, and Barbara Hulett. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast 
with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.